from the Elliott House Podcast Studios at Gardner-Webb University. Welcome to Web Chat. I'm Noel T. Manning II. On this show, we'll explore the people, programs, and possibilities of life at the web. Today, we chat with a former White House briefer for two presidential administrations. Patrick Woody is a new member of the 2022 Gallery of Distinguished Alumni at Gardner-Webb, and he was drawn to civic duty at an early age. And he's going to share a little bit about that story with us right here on WebChat. As we spent time with him, we also got a chance to talk about his experiences at Gardner-Webb University, Homeland Security, the CIA, and much more. So hang around. We'll be right back with that dialogue with 2003 Gardner-Webb University graduate, Patrick Woody. Gardner-Webb University now offers a concentration in cybersecurity within the traditional bachelor's degree. Cybersecurity is a fast-growing field with excellent job opportunities. Available to residential students now, a fully online option begins in January. Community college graduates with degrees in information technology can complete their bachelor's degree online at Gardner-Webb. For more information on the new cybersecurity program, contact DCP at gardner-webb.edu. Patrick Woody, it is so good to uh, be talking to you. Uh, glad to have you back. Um, I, I wish I could have you back on campus and we could spend some time uh, engaging, but it's uh, it's good to hear your voice and see your face virtually. So it's uh, good to see you, man. Good to see you too. I'm hoping to be at campus relatively soon. Well, awesome. We'll, we'll be looking forward to that and looking forward to, to spending some time with you that way as well. Well, I'll tell you, you, you spent a, a lot of time uh, at Gardner-Webb and in some leadership roles. And after you left Gardner-Webb, even more leadership roles in, in places that, you know, kind of wondering if you ever knew or ever thought that's where you would be. I'm looking forward to, to sharing uh, some of that with, uh, with our uh, listeners and those who may be uh, looking at this story in other ways. Uh, I'd love for you to give... Uh, those who were spending time with us, a little background where you came from, a little bit of that, that, that there's childhood interest that you had as well. So we'll get to know a little bit about Patrick Woody before Gardner-Webb. Sure. Um, so I'm originally from right outside of Richmond, Virginia. Um, and when I was growing up, I always loved history and politics. It was just kind of a natural thing I gravitated towards whenever election season would happen. You know, I used to tell my friends it was kind of like the Super Bowl for me. I would pay like attention to all of the debates and all this stuff. It was really nerdy for a younger kid. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Uh, a lot of that also came from my mom taking me to vote with her every single time she voted and like really emphasizing the importance of it. And I was going to do one of two things. You know, I initially thought about becoming a doctor and was very much focused on like, I'm going to go to med school. And I remember there was a case that I heard about in the news where a woman got stung by a bee in a park and the doctor who was in the park gave her a tracheotomy and saved her life. And she sued the doctor for scarring her neck and won. And I was just like, and this is before Good Samaritan laws. And I was just like, okay, there's something fundamentally wrong with this. And so I said, you know, I'm going to go to law school and try to fight this type of stuff because this really bothers me. And so I then began pivoting towards the law route and the pre-law route. And you know, I talked to 
a couple of my teachers in high school, and they were saying, you know, you either, either major in one of three things, history, political science, or English, because lawyers need to be good writers, they need to be able to communicate effectively, and they need to be able to structure their arguments. And those are the things that naturally kind of gravitate towards people who are going to go to law school. And so I knew I loved history. I knew I loved political science. And I had a teacher who spanned both middle school and high school, uh, favorite teacher during that period of time, named Mr. Young. And he just kind of made history and government classes come alive to me. And so I said, yeah, I'm definitely going to go this route. And that that is what largely depend, determined my two majors. Wow. Wow. So so what age were you when, when that decision really started playing itself out for you? I was I was either like 14, 15. I mean, wow. I, I pretty much knew what my majors were going to be like very early on in high school. Wow. That's that's amazing. And, and the fact that you followed through with it, because there are so many times, especially in that age, that that middle school, junior high age, that we think we know what we want to do. And and, and life has a way of, of uh, causing us to pivot <laughs> along yeah. the way. But you continued through that. So uh, how did Gardner-Webb come into the picture? So Gardner-Webb, I, I like to say Gardner-Webb came into the picture by divine accident because you know it. it was not it. at all an intention of mine to go to Gardner-Webb. I said that I wanted to go to a college that was someplace cold. And so I looked at only places north of Virginia. Wow. Um, I w- Virginia and north. And I wanted to get like a nice winter. I loved cold weather at the time. And I just said, I really want to get a place that's cold where I can really enjoy a long winter. And that also has a good academic program. But I didn't know where I was going to go. I just had like a list of 40 things. And I, I kid you not when I said I had a list of 40 things I wanted in a college. <laughs> and... I began applying and I applied big school, small school, public, private, Ivy League, the whole thing. And I remember that we had a Christian college fair at my high school and Gardner-Webb was present. And they ended up, I met Tim Chilton, who was my admissions counselor. And he said, you should apply to Gardner-Webb. And I was like, oh, I'm good. I'm, I plan on going somewhere. <laughs> Virginia or North, I'm not going anywhere where it's going to be warmer. He goes, well, you really, I think you would feel really good about Garden Web. And I was like, that's nice. I don't (laughs) intend to go there. And he just kept kind of picking at me the whole time we were at the college fair. And he was like, look, you should just do it and just see what happens. And I said, I I don't want to go. And he kept hammering me about it. So I finally said, fine, I'm going to apply. So I applied. I said, there you go. You can leave me alone. (laughs) At the time, my mom, uh, her bank had been bought out. The bank she worked at had been bought out by another bank. And they told her, you can relocate to North Carolina or you can stay in Virginia and we can just give you a severance package. And my grandparents, her parents were still alive at the time. They were elderly. And my mom said, I'm not going to relocate because I need to take care of my parents. And so she was largely just kind of at home for a year just to kind of enjoy something she hadn't had the opportunity to of me coming home from school every day and then seeing me go off to school because I was kind of a latchkey child. And unbeknownst to me, she and Tim would talk on the phone every day. Wow. And Tim would call my mom almost about 15, 30 minutes before I got home and they would talk on the phone. 
And I would come home and I was like, what in the world is she talking to? <laughs> and she was just like, oh, Patrick, Tim from Gardner-Webb wants to talk to you. I was like, I've already applied there. You know, he has nothing he really needs to be talking to me about. She goes, oh, I really think you should go to Gardner-Webb. And I was like, you don't know anything about Gardner-Webb. How would you know? And she goes, oh, yeah, I talk to Tim like every day. We talk about Gardner-Webb and how you would be a really good fit. Wow. And I was really resistant to it. Yeah. And I had already just said, no, I'm not doing that. And the university fellows competition came up. And my mom said, you are going to go to university fellows. Um, she's like, you know, before my bank got bought out, you could pretty much pick where you wanted to go to college. Now we're going to have to like think more strategically about paying for it. And you should go to university fellows. So I went to the competition and I remember going in and they asked me a question during my interview. And I just kind of like made my opinion very well known. And it was like, I was very direct. I was very blunt. And I, and immediately I looked at the three professors who were interviewing me and I said, well, I am not going to this university because <laughs> they just had these very stoic responses to what I said. And Dr. Neg Benabor was on the panel and he leaned in and he said, we need you here. Wow. And you know, I just said, oh, he goes, this would be a really valuable perspective to be brought to Gardner-Webb. Wow. And I still was like, no, not going there. And I found out I won the university fellows. And my mom said, okay, they're basically going to give you a scholarship to go here. Yeah. And I said, no, not doing it. And she said, let's go back for one final tour. And if you absolutely don't want to go, not going to force it. And I went to Gardner-Webb and it was a day where I went and sat in several classes. And I remember sitting in Dr. Hambright's constitutional law class. Yeah. And he asked the class a question about a Supreme Court case. And he said, can anybody answer this? And I like, nobody answered. He said, anybody. And I raised my hand and I gave him the answer to the question. Wow. And he goes, a senior in high school just answered this question. And none of you did. Maybe you need to be taking notes from him. Wow. And wow. <laughs> I was just like, yeah. And I was just kind of like thrown off by it. But then I also like really enjoyed the classes and I really enjoyed the campus vibe and everything about it. And I kind of fought it the whole day I was there. And then at the end of the day, I said, this is where I need to be. Wow. And I feel this is the right place. And I ended up going to Gardner Webb. Wow. You know, sometimes when we try to run so hard and so fast away from something. It's like we're on one of those lazy Susans that keeps spinning us around. You know, it's a yeah. life-size lazy Susan that keeps spinning us around and bam, we keep coming back to it. And I, I think there are times in our lives um, that we are um, shown a path and it's ultimately it is up to our, it's up to us. It's our choice. Yep. But there are times when we can't deny uh, what we're seeing, you know, we, we, we can try to avoid all these flashing lights that are saying here, here, hello, here, look. Um, but at some point it, it, it does become obvious that that is where we need to be. And it sounds like that's exactly what happened to you, but ultimately it came to you making that choice. That's incredible. Yeah, and it, it was just, you know, looking back on it now, 20 years removed from Gardner Webb, I am like, yeah, I would have hated going anywhere else. So uh, what year was that that you came to Gardner-Webb? 99. 
So it came in 99, right before the world was supposed to end, right before you know computers were supposed yep. to shut down and we were going to be back in the dark ages again. So you survived that. Survived Y2K. <laughs> That's right. So uh, when you came to Gardner-Webb, pretty early on, you, you connected uh, with the professors, you connected with classes, you connected with students, uh, connected with... Um, being engaged in campus life. Um, talk about that aspect of, of what you were able to, to be a part of. Yeah, it was, um, I was fortunate in that I lived in what is what was the honors dorm. And I, I lived there all four years I was on campus. And I loved it. It was a mini community of people that spanned not just the honors dorm, but people outside of the honors dorm. And I always had kind of an open door policy in my room where it's just like people can flow in and out. I would always have like food and snacks and stuff like that set there and just was about building relationships. And I have incredible friendships that came out of my time at Gardner Webb. But then it was also I learned the importance of service. Like I knew it coming into Gardner Webb, but it deepened in me that I was going to work towards something that contributed more to others than just myself. And I got that from the professors in the social science department, Hambright, Eastman, Yelton, all of those people, Ellington, um, they kind of fed that into me. Dr. Jones fed that into me. And I built these relationships with professors where I knew they would tell me the truth. And even if it was a hard thing for me to hear, like they would sit there and kind of just like tell me the things I needed to hear and teach me academically, but also teach me as a person. And, you know, I volunteered in different places on and off campus. I was a student tour guide and did that and loved it. Student admissions associate. Yeah. Um, and that was one of my favorite things because it allowed me to brag about Gardner Webb. And I would have probably one tour a day at least that I would do. Yeah. And it just became like this thing where I felt that I wanted to tell students about the experience that I had coming to Gardner-Webb, but also about the experience I'm having at Gardner-Webb. Right. And one of my absolute best friends was one of the first tours that I gave. And she kind of came in with the same perspective that I did. Wow. Um, she did not want to go to Gardner-Webb. It was her day off from school. Her mom kind of dragged her there. And I gave her about a four, four and a half hour tour. And I wow. kid you not on the time frame. Wow. Um, and by the end of it, she ended up coming to Gardner Webb. She was also a university fellow. And we are really good friends to this day. We were really good friends throughout our time at Gardner Webb. She ended up um, graduating the same exact day I did because she came in with some advanced credits. Yeah. And I just look at it as I have this community of people that even though I don't get to see them as frequently now as I want to, I know that when I meet them, it's almost like we pick up. Right. And Gardner Webb allowed that to come to fruition there. Yeah, and and Gardner Webb also, especially in the uh, department where you were, uh, a, a huge diversity of ideas and critical thinking, and um, I think that plays out so well uh, in preparing students for life after college is to not just be fed answers, 
but to be asked questions. And uh, many of the names that you mentioned uh, were so good and are so good at that, uh, those that are still with us, at doing that and, and challenging us to think, challenging us to think. And it, it was one of the things I liked the most about that department and also about the honors program. You know, there were diverse political opinions. There were diverse religious opinions in terms of denominational understandings, those types of things. And the thing I loved about the social science department is it was it was everything was on the table. If you had a differing opinion, you could let it be made known and they allowed you to debate it. They didn't tell you what was right or wrong. You got to actually go in and debate it. And it just was something that I am still to this day very grateful for because just being exposed to the diversity of ideas, being able to defend your ideas, but then also knowing you're never 100% right and that there's a lot of gray and it is easier for us to meet each other in the gray Mm -hmm. than stand so solidly in the black and white and never ever try to learn what the other person's thinking or what drives them and what leads them and motivates them. Yeah, so much of that relates to active listening. And in our society today, there's uh, limited active listening. <laughs> unless social it, media. I mean, social media yeah. does that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Unless it's the opinion that, that we want to agree with. Mm-hmm. And, and I think uh, a solid university like Gardner-Webb can teach us to do that, to listen to others, to dialogue, and not just um, have a talking at each other, talking at each other, but listening to each other. Uh, in, in whatever those diverse opinions may be. Now, while, while you were a student here, um, you also got to host a television show on politics uh, with, with a friend, and you uh, also uh, ultimately became the SGA president. Uh, so talk about those things and other leadership roles that you had while you were at Gardner-Webb as well. Sure. So uh, one, of, one of my friends and I hosted a politics show that we were both political geeks and political nerds, and we really got into it. It was called Politics in Black and White. We would debate. One week would be domestic, one week would be international, and we'd have a professor on who would talk about different perspectives on those types of things. And it was just, it was something that was fun. Um, What it also helped me do is it allowed some of the professors from different departments who were able to come in and speak to express opinions that they may not have expressed in the classroom. And again, it was allowing that free space. And, you know, I look back on it now and I am glad I did it. I also look back on it now and I I cringe (laughs) and just, you know, I I look at where the political discourse of everything is today. Yeah. And I look at where I was now and it's like, I haven't really moved. But if, you know, you look at the way things are now, I very much would just not fit into anything because I was willing to listen to the other person. I was willing to concede points. I was willing to actually yeah. like understand diverse viewpoints. And even to this day, it's like, it still puts me in a really weird spot because wow. no, no one, no one party, no one group of people has the right answer. Yeah. There's a mixture and yes. there's content. And so, you know, I, I know that on parts of the show, I took like very extreme, like, no, I've got the right answer positions, <laughs> but on other things, I took a more, you know, sensible approach. And I look at it as a part of like, if you were to play that video and play other moments in my life, it's kind of like a growth 
yeah. viewpoint and perspective. And I'm grateful for that. Um, for student government, yeah, I, I took a ton of leadership roles on campus, uh, was a part of the STA, was the vice president, and then ended up becoming um, the president, was also uh, on the student judicial board, um, and just really tried to help the community out. So if you were to take any life lessons from your time at Gardner-Webb, what would they be? Just, and one has become a life lesson for me is to serve the greater good. And sometimes that means you have to stand up against powerful people and powerful institutions yeah. and do things that are personally frightening. Sometimes that means you're going to lose friends. But yeah. at the end of the day, I would much rather be able to look at myself in the mirror and know I did the right thing than to yeah. get some type of temporary reward and know that I did something that was a betrayal to my fellow people. Uh, you went on to uh, to graduate school. I think two graduate degrees you've got as well, correct? One and a half. I am. Uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> okay. I was. I was at Maryland to, working on my dissertation, and then we lost several professors that were advisors. Uh, and so it's just been on me that I need to go back and finish the dissertation at, at transfer to George Mason. Um, but my career kind of took off, so it's it's been on hold yeah. for a bit. So, so what are the what is the first graduate degree you've got? Uh, it's a master's in international relations and comparative politics. Okay, and so the uh, the dissertation you're working on, what what will that degree uh, be? It will be a PhD in government. Okay, all right. So your career did take off, um, and it, it took off um, pretty quickly, didn't it? It it did. I I was in a very weird spot. Uh, for someone of my age and just, again, there were opportunities that I was given. And, you know, one of the life lessons, again, from Gardner-Webb that really helped me was let your work speak for itself. And you don't need to brag about what you do, but if you do quality work, it kind of brags for you. And that's what happened with my career. It was people recognized the work I did, and it gave me opportunities and open doors that I never would have believed I would have been able to walk through. Well, well, I'm not asking you to brag, but I do want you to talk about some of those opportunities. So, so this is me asking you. It's not me asking you to brag. It's me asking you to share uh, some of those opportunities that unfolded, maybe some that you never could have ever uh, conceived of happening. So I, I, I started in my career in government between Gardner-Webb, and my career in government, I worked for a tech nonprofit and a civic education nonprofit. The civic education was mainly teaching students and helping them to be more engaged in government and politics. And then I went to the tech nonprofit, the One Economy Corporation. And the thing that that really taught me is to really help people who are the least of these. Um, we were working with people who were absolutely in poverty and trying to improve their lives. Um, and so one of the things I did in that role is I ran a tax program where I helped people who were in poverty file their taxes. And it was just, they could take advantage of the earned income tax credit. And when, as I, again, it's a small thing, but as I filed their taxes, seeing them getting this massive refund back and knowing it's going to pay their rent for a couple of months, it's going to help to feed their kids, those types of things. It just really helped to feed me. Uh, and then after I finished my master's, I met a friend who worked, he was in my department uh, and he worked for DHS, Homeland Security Intelligence. He said, what do you want to do after 
you finish your master's. And I decided to move away from law into going to get um, a grad degree in political science and eventually a doctorate in there. And then I said I would fight terrorism as a part of that because uh, 9-11 happened exactly one year before that. And it just had a huge impact on me. And I said, yeah, this is what I want to do. And he says, well, you know, DHS has an intel shop. You should apply there and I'll do a referral for you. So I applied and I got a role and loved it. Um, it was just the most incredible opportunity. I like was amazed at how much I loved it and really just enjoyed being an analyst. And I was dealing with these like wide variety of issues. Um, and then as a part of that role, like we had to deal with like actual terrorist attacks that were potentially going to happen here in the United States. Yeah. And I remember in 2009, we had a particularly bad uh, situation where we were concerned about a terrorist attack. And I was just like, again, as a Gardner Webb graduate, just sat there and I said, I never would have imagined myself like being someone who is having a direct impact on stopping terrorism yeah. here in the United States. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were successful in helping to get the individuals arrested and to disrupt that operation. And then in 2010, I transferred to the National Counterterrorism Center. And that was where I really say my career just kind of began to take off. Yeah. Um, I was a part of a team there that covered online and internet-based terrorism that we created. No one else covered it. And we began doing some like incredibly cool, interesting stuff. And I wrote this one assessment. And I remember the National Security Council sent me an email and they said, we read your assessment and we'd like you to take the lead on this one particular project. And like, I was just like, okay, this is not happening. And the director of the National Security Council for this particular issue said, the White House read this assessment and they said they want you to help them with counter messaging for this issue. And I began like working on a six month project to write this entire counter messaging strategy for the US government. And again, it was just like looking back on it now, like I would have never imagined that like I'm crafting and creating the US government's policy on this issue. Yeah. And what administration was this? This was under the Obama administration. Okay. Okay. Um, and it, it was it was just like earth shattering for me. And I ended up developing it the and we finished it up and we implemented this strategy. And I just felt that momentum for what I was doing was picking up. And then my rotation at the National Counterterrorism Center was coming to an end. And DHS said, We want you back. Wow. And I was like, I really am happy here. <laughs> And NCTC had a hiring freeze and they couldn't hire me. They said, we really want to, but we can't because we are just under a freeze. And then I remember my boss coming to me a couple of weeks after that and told me, hey, so CIA, we get bodies from them and they have 10 analyst positions that they, we can hire against and we'd like you to be one of them. And they just said, are you okay with that? I said, absolutely. <laughs> and so I interviewed for the role. I got hired for it. I interviewed with my boss. So that made it even easier. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I remember, you know, jokingly, the final question he asked me was, who's the best boss in the world? And I said, <laughs> well, 
I would say the other boss, but you're the one that's actually interviewing me right now. Um, and then, you know, they were in process there. And then CIA came to me and said, VHS did not do a new background investigation for you. And they said, so you don't have an active clearance right now. And I said, oh, that's news to me. They're like, so we're going to do one for you and we're going to expedite it. And in the span of like a few weeks, they just blew through my background check. And looking back on that, it was really fortuitous because it sped up the process for me to get a clearance and to get expedited into CIA. So then I, NCTC said, you know, CIA will process you through. You have to go back to DHS. And the day I went back to DHS, the Boston Marathon bombing happened. Wow. And wow, the day? NCTC said the day, April 15th. And DHS ended up contacting NCTC and NCTC said, can you borrow him for a few more days? And so I remember working the Boston Marathon bombing and trying to determine who were the attackers, what actually happened, all of that stuff. Wow. And once that finally got wrapped up, I went back to DHS and worked there as a, as a manager for about six months. And I remember I was having... I enjoyed managing my team, but the environment was not great. Yeah. And I remember I had a really bad day because one of the people I managed just kind of got beat up by another manager, Mm. like, you know, emotionally beat up. And I was like, I don't know how much longer I could do this. And I went downstairs into a locker and my turn on my phone because you can't have our phones despite Homeland and all these other shows. You don't have electronics with you. Um, And there was a voicemail from CIA. And they said, call us back. I called them and they said, we have one opening in our EOD class, entry on duty class. Would you like to be that person? I said, yes. They said, that means you have to give less than two weeks notice. I was like, no problem. Done. <laughs> um, and I started, I left DHS. I started CIA and then the government shut down for three weeks as I was on board. <laughs> and so you know, it was just this weird confluence of events. But then I came back, everything started, and I worked on that same exact team. And then about a year and a half, two years in, there was a request from Director of National Intelligence, Clapper. He wanted a briefing on the dark web. And that was one of the issues I covered. And I came in, I was a group one of seven, to go brief him on the dark web. And they said, you're going to start out the briefing, and then the others are going to follow you. And as I'm starting out the briefing, I'm about a minute and a half in, and Director Clapper says, the president needs to hear that. And I said, yeah, that'll happen, you know, (laughs) all of that. And didn't pay any mind to it. The next morning I came in, and I had a bunch of missed calls on my classified phone. And I was like, who is not leaving me a voicemail? It's just like huge bet to me. And I found out our voicemail system had been updated over the weekend and wiped everything out. And then the phone rang like three minutes after I was griping. And the woman who organized the briefing said, do you remember how he said the president needs to hear that? Um, Director Clapper is pitching this to Susan Rice, who was then the national security advisor. And if this goes through, he wants you to brief President Obama on Friday. And I said, oh, OK. And I said, well, Susan Rice is not going to approve this. Like, There's no way. And later on that afternoon, I got the she's approved it. And so me and another briefer were made to be the ones to go brief President Obama. And 
we were briefing him and the entire National Security Council. Um, and it was just like the most incredible thing. Uh, they told us we were going to take the hour-long briefing that we had for Director Clapper and get it down to eight minutes. Oh, wow. Because the president's day is planned in five-minute increments. Yeah. And so me and the co-briefer, we ran through it. We had it down. And what was surreal is just walking over to the West Wing and then walking into the Oval Office and then like the president's there. And, you know, you shake hands with the president. You know, you are like seeing him. He knows your name. (laughs) And it was just this incredible experience. And then, you know, the big thing is, is that you don't want to mess up. Yeah. (laughs) And so I just was rehearsing this over and over and over again, making sure I didn't mess up. Um, And then I went in and did the briefing. And then he ended up peppering us with questions. Wow. And it was just like this incredible experience. And then then Vice President Biden was also in the room. I mean, we had all of the senior people that were there. And I came out of it. And I remember my co-briefer and I, we stood up at the end of the briefing. And the deputy director of national intelligence was in the briefing with us and he grabbed an apple because they didn't have the M&Ms anymore because Mrs. Obama said that he needed to have healthy food, and not the candy. <laughs> and then he pointed at the apple and then each of us grabbed an apple and we walked out and we were just like, how do we preserve this apple for the rest of our lives? <laughs> um, but it was just unbelievable that like, again, this guy from Richmond who went to Gardner-Webb is in front of the president, the vice president, all of these senior leaders telling them about this thing. Yeah. And they're listening to his every single word. Yeah, and asking questions. <laughs> and asking questions. Like my mind was just completely blown. Wow. Just completely blown. Wow. And then and then after that, like things really took off. Yeah. Everybody wanted the briefing. And so I began traveling all over the US traveling overseas, briefing different government officials, briefing everybody you can think of because they wanted to hear the briefing. Because I was briefing so much, it became like second nature to me. And so I remember in June or May of 2017, they had sent out a notification saying, hey, if you want to be a backup presidential daily briefer, feel free to apply. So I submitted my name, submitted my resume. Within two days, I got an email saying, we want to talk to you. And then I got an instant message from the chief of staff for the PDB at the time. And he said, hey, we want you to fill in immediately. We have a role for you. And I said, oh, okay, how how soon? He's like, uh, it'll start in mid-June and we want you to like fill in. And I said, for how long? He goes, not determined yet. Wow. He's like, we want to talk to you about it. And I said, okay. So I went over and talked to him. He said, it's for the Secretary of Homeland Security. And I said, oh, well, you know, and this is under the Trump administration. This is in 2017. And I just said, oh, I don't know if I want to brief DHS because I was a DHS employee. And I said, when I was done, I was done. And now I'm going to go kind of go back to the office again. And he said, well, you know, I think this would be a great opportunity. And I went in and briefed General Kelly, who is in the Secretary of Homeland Security. And he and I hit it off. Yeah. Um, we had this incredible briefing relationship that would go, we talk about like personal things. I remember him lecturing me about smoking 
and he was talking about uh, a foreign official who smoked. And he goes, you don't smoke, do you? I was like, no, sir, I don't. He goes, don't ever smoke. It's a bad thing. It's really unhealthy. You should never do it. Um, but we would have these personal conversations about things that were just really incredible. And I was his briefer for a couple of months. And then his new briefer finally got hired. And I said, I'm going to introduce you to General Kelly. He was traveling at the time. And then I'm going to ride off in the sunset. And I remember one of the last things he said to me is, you better apply to be my permanent briefer. Because he said, I'm really upset that you're not my permanent briefer. And I said, I was just a backup. I will apply, I promise. This was Friday, the last Friday in July when I was talking to his replacement briefer. And I went home and took a nap. And my phone starts buzzing. And my boss, my normal boss at work said, what does this mean for you? And I just looked at her text. I'm like, what is she talking about? And then I looked up at the TV and it said, John Kelly named White House chief of staff. And I said, I guess that means I'm applying to be the chief of staff briefer. Wow. And so I applied for the role and ended up getting it and started the role as White House chief of staff briefer uh, in November of 2017. And it's normally a one year role. And I stayed in it. I kept getting asked to extend by the chiefs of staff, uh, and I stayed in it until January of 2021. Man, that is incredible. I'm sure probably so much of it feels surreal as you're kind of looking back at, at that time. Uh, any other things that you want to share from a surreal aspect? So... One of one of the things that I did every day as part of being the chief of staff briefer is I would drop off the president's briefing. And on the news, you often see the president kind of walking in this portico between the West Wing and the residence. And I would walk there every morning to go drop off the briefing. And I would literally stop after I dropped off the briefing. I'd give it to his valet, and then I would come back and I would stop. And you can see the Washington Monument all of these things. And I would make an intentional effort every morning to stop yeah. and just take in the fact of where I was. Yeah. Um, you know, I ended up becoming kind of Trump's backup briefer. And so whenever he would travel overseas, I was his briefer. Um, I would go to Mar-a-Lago. I would go to Bedminster when he stayed extended periods of time. And I remember the first time riding on Air Force One. It was just like the most incredible thing. And I was like, holy moly, I am in like a motorcade <laughs> heading to Air Force One. Like, this is just insane. Um, you know, I remember the first time briefing him on Air Force One and just like walking into the office on the plane and knowing that like I'm the guy yeah. who's going to brief him. Like there's not other people who are going to like support me on this. Yeah. So it's on me to do this. Um and becoming a known commodity mm -hmm. also in the West Wing still kind of blew my mind. Yeah. Um, I would do my crossword puzzle every morning in between briefings in the lobby of the West Wing. And like all of these people you would see on TV would come by and like, hey, Patrick, how's it going? <laughs> and they were like, is it a tough one today? And they would just like ask me like personal questions, taking my wife and kids to the Easter egg roll with my family. Um and just being able to like bring them in the West Wing and show them the Oval Office and all of these things and have the chief of staff say, oh, well, go show them the Oval Office. Uh, being able to brief the president, you know, again in the Oval Office and then just like having that experience. I mean, it was just I look back on it. I'm like, I still can't believe. Yeah. Like if you had told me even 10 years ago, I would be there. I'd be like, no, nah, 
maybe in like 20, 30 years. And I just was really fortunate to have those opportunities. Yeah. And, and you, many times when you are um, holding that weight of responsibility that comes with something high profile like that, sure, you realize how uh, challenging it is and you realize I've, I've, got to, I've got to make sure I say the right things. But sometimes it takes distance from that to look back to realize, wow, wow, I, I really got a chance to, to do that. <laughs> and and that's, that's the big thing is that, you know, I still am kind of baffled yeah. by the fact that, like, there were really important decisions that were made, and I was the guy to brief them. Wow. That... I was able to go into the chief of staff's office in the West Wing, like, like full freedom to walk yeah. in there. And I was able to say, sir, there's something really important I need to tell you. And I was able to interrupt meetings. And, you know, it was the fact that I remember, particularly under chief of staff Mulvaney, I interrupted one of his meetings he was in and his body man went in to go tell him that I was out there. And he stopped the meeting because he said, I know you don't interrupt me for the sake of having FaceTime. Wow. And wow. so for me, that kind of showed that they took what I did seriously yeah. and that they valued what I was bringing to yeah. the table. Yeah. You earned respect. You earned respect. Yeah. Man, that's, that is absolutely incredible. So since that time, so that was you said January 21. Tell us what's been happening with you uh, the past year and a half or so. So I realized after being in the West Wing and CIA in a really active, always in the media perspective of a role that I wanted something quiet. So I ended up going to Twitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you don't mean just tweeting. You actually mean working with Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I work as a part of Twitter's global public policy team. And I am their person for bad stuff. So I kind of try to do really good things to fight all of the bad stuff that happens online and offline um, and love the role. I mean, it's it's very similar to what I did when I was in the Intel community in terms of just trying to have good uh, good intentions and really trying to work to stop bad stuff. And it's a different type of bad stuff. It's a different dimension. Yeah. But the impact and the ability to do good makes me motivated to wake up every day. Give me an example. So, you know, one of the key things I work on is Twitter last the What I was hired for uh, is Twitter in 2021 was the chair of the operating board of the global internet forum to counter terrorism. And that is the organization that is there to prevent terrorist propaganda from being posted online and spreading online. Okay. And, you know, the work that we were able to do with GIFCT and how we were able to help fight some of the bad stuff, particularly during like some recent attacks like the Buffalo attack, right. where we were able to really work to get that stuff down. Mm -hmm. um, that helps me. That motivates me. Um, working with different institutions like the Technology Coalition that helps to stop child sexual exploitation and abuse material and getting that stuff in making it where those things don't stay online so the internet becomes a safer place. Yeah. Um, you know, I love that stuff because I know that it's not just something that's benefiting me. 
it's benefiting my kids, it's benefiting other people's kids, it's benefiting society as a whole, trying to prevent that stuff from from perforating online. Yeah, yeah. Man, this is this has been such a wonderful time to chat and catch up and just hear this story unfold. I remember you when you were a student here and it's been so uh, marvelous to to watch you from afar uh, and, and to see you grow and become continue to become the person that I remember you as uh, when you were a student here. Uh, I want to make sure I give you a chance. Anything else you want to make sure you cover or share that, that I didn't ask you? I mean, I, I think the things I've learned from my experience and the things that I've been fortunate enough to encounter is try to serve the greater good, be willing to speak truth to power, I remember there are times that I've said things to President Trump, to President Obama, Vice President Biden, that they may not have wanted to hear, but they were the things that were the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, and this is something that stuck with me long before Gardner Webb, that I got to practice at Gardner Webb and still sticks with me today. Remember and get to know the people that are deemed the little people. cleaning people, the custodians, those types of things, because they matter just as much. And when I was in the West Wing, I knew every janitor. I knew all of the Secret Service officers who were desk people. I knew all of the people who were generally kind of on the periphery. When I was at CIA and NCTC, I knew them all by name. And those are the people that I still connect with really well, because they often in these situations don't get treated with the same degree of respect. Mm -hmm. And I want them to know that your role is temporary. Like president, you're temporary. CIA analyst, you're temporary. It's who you are as a person that never changes. And you have to acknowledge that deep intrinsic value of each person. And so, you know, for any people who are students that are listening, as you move throughout your career and throughout your life, value everyone, regardless of what they can offer you, because what they offer you shouldn't matter. You should treat them with the same degree of respect that you would want to be treated, because sometimes you never know where that person's going to end up and how you treated them matters. And I look at the situation at DHS as being the perfect example. If I had gone in and said, I don't want to breach John Kelly, so I'm going to do a really bad job of it then it wouldn't have provided me with the opportunities I had. But I went in and took it just as seriously as anything else. And I went in and said, I'm going to give my absolute all to do this and do a good job of it. And so, you know, commit to what you're doing. The final thing I'll say is that even as you move throughout the world and things get really good professionally for you, take time for your family. Yeah. Because those are the things that people will remember after you die. Um, you know, I look at the fact that my son and my daughter are not going to remember, or they, they will, but the things they are going to remember aren't that their dad was briefing in the White House. It's dad going to my baseball game, yeah. dad going to my dance recital, dad taking me to the theme park. Those things matter far more because those are things that you're investing in over time that you will see huge returns on and your career could be gone tomorrow. Yeah. And so value those things that you really don't have the chance to get back. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you had mentioned, you know, going back to the beginning of, the, of our time, you 
talked about service and, and how that was something that was really important to you when you were at Gardner Webb, and it's something that's continued to be uh, important to you. So are, are there particular causes in your life that you feel drawn to, that, that you feel connected to? I, I serve on the board of directors for Catholic Charity San Francisco. Um, I'm not Catholic, um, I'm Protestant, but I support it because uh, I was asked to be on the board through my relationship with Twitter. And I love it because it's helping out people who are on the margins, mm -hmm. homeless people, domestic violence victims, children in poverty, people who just don't have things. Yeah, And that has always been something I'm passionate about. It's why I married, one of the many reasons why I married my wife, she's a social worker who deals with homeless uh, people experiencing homelessness and domestic violence. And so I feel that like ability to help out those people and to have those causes advocated for are critical. But then I also try to find a way to help out those without a voice. And when I was in the West Wing, there were several conversations I had with very senior people that had nothing to do with intelligence, that had to do with how are you treating a group of people that you may never run into contact with? Are these people being treated with respect, with dignity? If not, we need to figure out a way to do that. And you know, one of the things I always told my chiefs of staff and their deputies is that I'm gonna tell you everything you need to know, everything you think you need to know, everything you don't need to know. <laughs> and then some things I'm gonna tell you that are outside of intelligence, but are critically important for you to know because you live in a bubble and you need to know what the average person is thinking. And so being able to advocate for those people who don't have that voice um, was really important. Wow, it's amazing. Patrick, thanks so much. I appreciate your time. Appreciate you spending it with us. And uh, man, we will continue to follow you and celebrate you and uh, what you do. Thank you so much for having me on. I would like to thank Patrick Woody for being our guest today on this edition of Web Chat. You can read more about Woody in the 2022 edition of the Gardner Web Magazine. So congrats to Patrick and also to Kitty Hoyle for being named to the 2022 Gallery of Distinguished Alumni at Gardner Web. You can find and subscribe to official podcasts just like these on all of your favorite platforms. And we appreciate you joining us for web chat and look forward to having you with us next time right here on the Bulldog Nation Podcast Network. Until then, from the Elliott House Podcast Studios on the Gardner Web University campus, I'm Noel T. Manning II.